seems a appropriate occasion to give some to give some reflections about the role of mothers in our life. Once a year, once a year, we have seems we have some kind of vague intimation that we're supposed to think of our mothers in Western culture with this uh, tradition of Mother's Day. But it's only once a year, and quite often the reasons for it, the deeper reasons, um, aren't always made that clear to us, you know, at least in the way I was taught in primary school and high school growing up in the secular education system. So it's good to delve deeper, I think, into this subject because it pertains to something which is a foundationally good quality, a basis for happy, healthy mind states and happy, healthy relationships in the teachings of the Buddha as they're taught by the Krubarajans of our tradition. Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Man, the senior Thai monks, but all the way back, stretching all the way back to the Buddha himself. So a lot could be said about this. Uh, gratitude is one thing, and gratitude for all the everything we've received, all the help, all the care, all the love and attention, and all the education, all the kind words that we've received from our mothers. So because it's very easy to look over things in life, it's very easy to take things for granted, it's very easy to just to not notice things, we're not paying attention to them. A lot can get missed. So I think definitely this is one of those areas where a lot it can be overlooked. It can be completely unconscious of everything that guardians have done for us. It could be anyone. It could be particularly teachers, guardians, people who are responsible for our well-being on both the physical and mental level. But this uh, tradition of Mother's Day, uh, this is obviously a time where we should make an extra effort to try and understand this, particularly uh, you know, at present in our culture because it's not something which I believe is culturally specific to Asia to China, to Thailand uh, where this principle is uh, taught to people and emphasised uh, to a greater degree so I think about Mother's Day I was just reading recently in Nepal Mother's Day is traditionally held as a holy day on late April, early May, and it's treated as a holy day. Uh, so it still has a very spiritual, spiritual undertone to it, as I understand it. And you pick the day that they have it on, uh, according to a legend, actually. Which is this, apparently, there was a grieving man who was weeping uh, next to a pond. And uh, when he stopped weeping, he looked into the pond and he saw the face of his deceased mother. He had this kind of vision. 
And so the day that they choose for their Mother's Day is based on that legend, perhaps in connection with the day that that is reported to have happened. So we don't really know what's going on there. Sometimes people who are grieving deeply, maybe uh, something is going on there on the spiritual level. Perhaps someone came back to visit him and encourage him. Perhaps, you don't know, maybe wishful thinking and uh, a state of depression and strong desire for comfort could have brought up something just in his own mind. Yeah. That it shows even grown men when they're suffering deeply, whatever's going on there, they might think back to the thing which uh, in their mind is a symbol of support and comfort and stability for them. It's a Nepalese, old Nepalese tradition, but you can see anecdotes of this and you can see hints of this in our own culture you think about the almost reminiscent many of you are going to know this song written by Paul McCartney he's a member of the Beatles about his mother Mary so it was misconception for a long time that he was talking about Mary as in the mother of Jesus Turns out that his own mother's name was Mary, and so he was talking about his mother in that song. Mind you, I I suspect that it's not a complete coincidence that he chose the words Mother Mary. Perhaps there is a religious connotation for him. But in any case, similar sort of thing. He had a dream that his mother appeared in the dream. And when he woke up, he, he felt so blessed to be in her presence again, that he decided to write that song. Another group, is this British pop group I remember when I was a teenager, Spice Girls, they wrote this song. I think it was called Mama, about their relationship, or about their feelings towards their mothers. It was a very popular song at the time. I was reading, journalists asked one of them later on, why did you write the song? Yeah. So what was it about? How did this song come about? And um, one of them said, she answered, well, you get older. Basically, we realized just, she said, how how much we were cows to our mum, you know, how mean we were. We got older, looked back and felt really bad about that. And we wanted to do something to make up for it. So they wrote this song, basically apologizing uh, reaffirming their love for their mums and how much they appreciate everything they got from their mums and how sorry they were for how mean and insensitive they could be when they're in their teens. Another anecdote would be this, and I'm choosing ones deliberately from the West, you might have noticed. Yeah. Bill Bryson is an author, travel writer talks in his book, which is a personal memoir about growing up growing up in Des Moines in America in the 50s. Talks a lot about his upbringing, about the society at the time and his family. So there are constant references to his mother. You know, as he writes the book, he's probably going in his mid-50s or late 50s. He talks about this very clear memory of when he was a young kid. It's his tradition once a week that he'd 
walk from school to where his mother worked. She was a journalist working at a printing press on a typewriter and go in there every day and see his mother working on the typewriter. And then she'd say hello and they'd talk. And after she's finished work, she'd take him to see a movie once a week. And he said still in his later years, after his mother had passed away, she'd been passed away, he said he'd do anything to see that again, just to walk into that place where she used to work, just tapping away, clacking away on the typewriter. You walk up to her as a little kid and go off to see a movie together. He said he'd give anything to be able just to see that again, just to see his mum one more time at work. So from these anecdotes and these little stories, we can see that quite clearly this thing about this bond, the very powerful connection between a mother and her children, this is not culturally specific. It's, it's not something which uh, is the property of any particular ethnicity or any particular religion. It seems quite universal. It stretches across all of these things. But perhaps just there's more aware of this, awareness of it in other cultures. So in traditionally Buddhist cultures, in Sri Lanka and Thailand, particularly strong in China, It's emphasized more. There's more awareness of it. But uh, it doesn't mean that it's uh, specific to those places, of course not. And this is just a few little anecdotes, and I've got my own. If I was to talk about my own mother, I've got a big debt of gratitude to my mother, not just because of the motherly duties that she carried out since I was born, but she actually is the first one to buy me a Dhamma book, introduced me to the teachings of the Buddha when I was 16, bought me this book for Christmas, which changed my life. And she enrolled me in Dhamma classes at a place near our house where they were offering uh, Dhamma lessons. And so that sparked the fuse. You know, that was my introduction actually to the spiritual path. It also came from my mother. Yeah, and this is not an uncommon experience. Generally, it's our moms that take us to the monastery. It's our moms that have that more uh, devotional or religious side. It's a fairly common experience. More than the father. And so it's worth kind of appreciating that. Maybe it's part of your own story, of your own Dhamma practice. Maybe your mum had something to do with that. Maybe she didn't yet. But for my mum, even as an Australian guy growing up, uh, it was still my mother that uh, helped lead me into the Dhamma, despite the fact that she's not Buddhist. So that's quite strange. But also one of my aunties, again, bought me a Buddhist book before I ever bought one for myself, a close friend of my mum. You know, this tendency for the, the older female members of the family to kind of nurture that spiritual side in us. If I was to go back further, my own story, my grandmother, a very devout woman and a very loving woman, very generous woman, 
died a few years ago at the age of 93. She wasn't a Buddhist practitioner. She wasn't a meditator. She was a Christian, Greek Orthodox Christian. But again, that religious or spiritual side to her was very strong. Just before, maybe two or three weeks before she died, my family went to visit her in the nursing home. And it was around dinner time. She was eating her evening meal. And my little niece, Raph, she went up to her and just started eating off her plate, <laughs> as kids do. And my grandmother just sat there watching her eat her evening meal. My niece just kept eating away, eating away until there's nothing left on the plate. And my grandmother, her comment was, my plate is empty, but my heart is full. And so that's the sort of thing that my grandmother would say. You always think that you lived to feed other people. You have to nurse other people. Lived a very simple life. Lived an almost hermetic existence. And after my grandfather passed away, he was fairly young. He was only in his early 50s when he got cancer and died. So my grandmother lived alone for the rest of her life until she was 93. And I remember asking her once, did you ever think of remarrying? She said no. She said she never thought of remarrying. She just accepted her situation and decided you know, to just go on living like that as a widow. And she never said why, and I never asked her why, but I get the sense that perhaps women of that era, they were thinking differently. Maybe there's a deep sense of loyalty to the husband, yeah. not wanting to marry again. She thought of becoming a nun, yeah. But she didn't do that. She decided against that. And so just gave her time and energy to working for the Red Cross uh, for many more decades. So doing charity work. But living alone. So she was very patient. She was very tough as an immigrant coming to Australia. One day she herself found a toddler who'd been abandoned in the back of someone's house ended up becoming one of my aunties, not blood relation, but, you know, think of her that way. As a toddler, little girl, who had just been uh, totally abandoned by her original mother, which, of course, sadly happens sometimes. And upon finding this baby girl, she adopted, took her into her house and let her live with her for quite some time fed her, treated her like her own daughter. Even many years later, they kind of drifted apart and there wasn't so much contact between them anymore, even to the point where you think there probably should have been more, but she never got upset about that or took it personally. She never held a grudge. Someone that didn't hold grudges against other people, you know, she believed in forgiveness, generosity with no strings attached. And she was incredibly tough. Again, being an immigrant coming from Cyprus to Australia in those days where 
she wouldn't have been on the receiving end of a whole lot of support or understanding when she came here. So she's a very important and respected memory, a member of my family, my grandmother on my mother's side. And so this is something that we can all appreciate. Maybe your mother, your grandmothers, your great-grandmothers, they had certain qualities, they had certain stories, things that you should think back to and think about what qualities they displayed, what kind of an example they set. Because perhaps some of those qualities are dwindling in this day and age. Maybe some of these things are kind of like relics getting harder to find. I hope not. But sometimes one gets the feeling that that could be the case. And this is, again, not something which is culturally specific. We should think that this is something that Westerners can't understand or is something that we shouldn't teach as Buddhism makes its way into Europe and into Australia and into America. Even though monks like myself, we face a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say difficulty, I'd say an, an underlying resistance or an inability to understand this thing about gratitude and respect to one's parents. It just doesn't resonate with people. But we have to be patient because it didn't resonate with me until I became a monk. And this was Ajahn Sumedho's experience. I was telling him once in Bangkok when I went to visit him, just I was finding it very difficult uh, teaching gratitude to parents to Western people. And I said, I can't understand why it should be so hard. It seems like an obvious thing to have gratitude to one's parents. And he sat there silently for a few moments and pondered what I'd said. And then his reply was, but, you know, I didn't feel much gratitude for my parents until I became a monk. And then that kind of forced me to admit that neither had I. So some of these things have to kind of percolate. We have to absorb the idea and we have to sometimes get some distance even from our families Numpo Samedo said it was really after after he became a monk, that's when he had his big gratitude experience and it really turned his life around and improved his meditation. He said his samadhi started to come easily after that. His meditation uh, started to become easier, smoother run you know, after he had this big gratitude experience. After he realized uh, just everything that he'd received, both from his parents and from his teachers. But this took many years. So even uh, if it's difficult to really get this through uh, in a time and a place where it's not a popular idea, it's hard to grasp, we have to keep teaching it. We have to keep talking about it because uh, I think fundamental, foundational to a happy heart. But I also admit that it took me uh, many years, distance from my mom, distance from my dad in the monastery, hearing the Dhamma teachings, not necessarily able to fully understand them or absorb them, but just hearing it and having that distance from my parents and slowly realizing uh, everything they'd done, all the efforts they'd gone to, all the struggles they'd had, trying to control me on one hand, but trying to give me more and more freedom as I got older on the other hand. 
trying to strike this difficult balance between giving your kids safety and so stopping them from doing certain things, but also giving them some freedom and some room to move around. It's not an easy job and parents can get into a lot of doubts about that. They have insecurities, worries that they're doing a bad job. And you can't see that. As a kid, you can't see that. You don't know what's going on in the minds of your parents because it's subjective. It's totally internal. You can't see it. the doubts that they have or the struggles that they go through. Literally, when you're an infant, your your faculty of sight is not developed enough to see what they're doing, everything they go through. We're not cognizant of it. So we should try to be in later years when we can think and we can reflect and we can delve into these kind of recollections or thoughts to try and empathize with what a mother goes through and everything she goes through and all the personal sacrifices and the physical strain and the mental strain that we put on them and not to let that go unnoticed. If you let all the things that you've received go unnoticed, if you don't appreciate it, and then you can end up feeling impoverished. You know, it's just a matter of where we're placing our minds, what we're directing our attention to. We're directing our attention you know, to the losses, to the times where we felt neglected or ignored or on the receiving end of misfortune or even abused, misunderstood. If we dwell on those things, you can feel impoverished and your heart can even break. These are things that break the heart. You know, What's gratitude? Gratitude is the opposite. It's the perfect opposite experience. It's when you turn your attention and direct your awareness to just how fortunate you've been and everything you've gotten, big or small, whether it's from your own parents, from friends, families, friends, teachers, mentors, guides, anyone who's given you anything, you direct your awareness to that and become fully aware of it. I call that experience the opposite. It's the inverse of a broken heart. If you want to experience the inverse, the reverse experience of a broken heart, then you cultivate gratitude because it's replenishing. It fills the heart with a sense of satisfaction and gladness and happiness and contentment, then actually you've probably got much more to rejoice about in terms of what other people have done for you than you're actually fully aware of because you're just not thinking about it or paying attention to it. That's what Katanyu means. Katanyu, kata. It's the Pali word. It means to know what was done, kata, what was done in the past. Unused awareness or knowing. The counterpart of that is akatanyu. An akatanyu, like in Thai, you would say a lug akatanyu. Lug akatanyu means a child who has no gratitude, but it literally means a, like a, a daughter or a son who's doesn't know what their parents have gone through or what their parents have done for them. And ignorance is like that. What is ignorance? It's something that we actually do. Yeah, we ignore things. 
we don't pay attention to them and so we stay ignorant of them unaware of them and unappreciative of them knowledge wisdom the opposite of ignorance knowing something that's when you direct your awareness to it you don't ignore it pay attention to it take some time to really think about it reflect on it and then you start learning things you start to become aware of things like that so an akatanyu can become a katanyu someone who's unaware you know, unappreciative of whatever it is they become aware of it they become appreciative of it everyone's family goes back many generations we've got our we've got our biological family we've also got our spiritual family so for me my dharma mother is another woman lives in woodend in victoria my first meditation teacher my first buddhist teacher and so I haven't forgotten her. I go back to her house once every year, usually, unless something's holding me up. And make sure when my dad arrives there with me that he's holding flowers and chocolates. And so we both of us stay aware that she was the one who helped me understand the Dhamma when I was all the way back then, when I was still in high school. And I make sure that I make that clear to her every year, make a trip to her house have a Dhamma discussion and leave and this is important just to me you know it's not something I just do for her yeah but I have to reaffirm to myself that I value this quality of gratitude I'm going to act it out as well as I can and that's universal she's from the Tibetan tradition you see all Buddhist traditions you know she she understands why I'm doing that as a practice as a tradition on a personal level but also on the level of a monk and a Buddhist practitioner. So we had a very interesting kind of history. I met her when I was 16 and she started teaching me uh, about the fundamentals of Buddhism, about the Four Noble Truths, about the Eightfold Path. And I knew her for two or three months and then didn't see her again for 10 years. Of course, in that time, I'd ordained and become a monk and started to uh, wander around uh, the various forests and the various um, outback regions in Victoria and uh, thought that I would never see her again. This is 10 years later. I was standing on a street one day, waiting for arms food to arrive. I was in a country town, back of Smash, and I was by myself in my robes, obviously, and holding my arms bowl, waiting on the street, standing there by myself. And this lady and her husband turned up, and they had prepared food, and I could see straight away that they'd actually properly prepared food, they'd cooked a proper meal, for me you know usually it's the asian people sri lankan people thai people that do that these strangers or the passers-by on the street that are kind enough to help you they're not aware of what we're doing that we're dependent on arms food for our only uh, 
nourishment for the day. But I could see that they'd prepared food properly and this lady looked vaguely familiar. And I was just looking at her and she was looking at me and she said, Venerable Sir, we've, we've uh, prepared food for you. And so obviously they knew what they were doing. I could tell that they were Buddhist straight away. But I, after a few seconds, I realized who it was. And she completely, uh, she couldn't recognize me. And so I just gave her a big smile and I said, don't you remember me? And she said, uh, um, do we know each other? She looked very perplexed. And I said, yeah, we do. I said, do you remember a young guy in your Dharma class 10 years ago on that street? And uh, you know, I would have said this or I gave her a brief profile of me at the time. And she looked at me for a few more moments and then her eyes brightened in a state of almost shock. <laughs> she gasped, realizing who I was. It's one of her Dhamma students, long lost Dhamma student. And she was absolutely flabbergasted that I'd actually had become a monk since then and probably looked very different, about 30 kilos lighter and <laughs> more mindful, I hope, than when she first met me. Uh, she was absolutely bowled over by that. And so this is a very happy experience for us because even after 10 years, it's a small world. We located each other again just by chance. And so after that, she came to that street uh, pretty much every day for the time that I was staying in that forest, about seven kilometers out of that town, uh, to offer me food to support my practice of tudong. This is my spiritual mother. Her name is Judith Ann. She lives in in Melbourne, outside of Melbourne, Victoria, and been practicing Buddhism for many decades now. So we could extend sometimes, you know, the word mother. You can extend it to people that have played perhaps uh, a certain important role in your in your life. Maybe they haven't just brought you up nourished you, fed you with food, maybe they've fed you with knowledge and wisdom. As they say in Thai poetry, it's not just a flow of milk that your mother sends into you or gives you. It's a flow of her voice, her words, her encouragement, her advice. This is something that a mother is kind of feeding her children with, ongoing from a very young age as soon as they can understand up until their adult years perhaps so this is a holy occasion to respect and to have gratitude you know this experience is if it goes deep it really does brighten the mind so this is something which is sacred um, what did the Buddha say? The Buddha said something which seems relevant to me in the present age. He said that one word for your parents is also ancient teachers. Ancient teachers, even holy ones, celestial beings, gods. This little cluster of synonyms or bywords, the Buddha says that you can associate with your mom and dad. And they are like that. 
you think about that when you're growing up, your parents are like gods. You look up to them. They're these huge protective creatures and they are your creators. So in a sense, they are like gods. The Buddha said, this is a byword for your mum and dad, gods or ancient mentors or even holy ones. And there's truth in that. It's just that it takes a bit of effort to really reflect on it, to meditate on it, to dig down into what it might mean. This is for the sake of our own mind, but it's also for the sake of our relationships. Our relationships, how we interrelate, how we our interplay between our life and other people's lives, and the people around us. This is something pointed out. This ancient sutta. Yeah, this is quite well known. The Sigalaka Sutta. Young man in ancient India in the time of the Buddha. He's been told by his father to go out and do this probably what was a Brahmanical practice. Don't quote me on that. But a religious practice of the time which was to worship the six directions go out paying homage and revering the six directions, go out onto the street with, they would have, he had wet hair, wet clothes. Maybe he was doing a kind of prostration or a bowing gesture in the different directions. And the Buddha comes by this young man uh, doing this uh, devotional practice. And you ask him, what is he doing? He tells him, you know, I, re- I revere the words of my father and he told me to do this practice so this is what I'm doing you see the Buddha's skill as a teacher here you can see that perhaps this isn't the most fruitful uh, way or the most useful way to to direct one sense of reverence or respect he doesn't just tell him you're wrong you're doing an empty practice this is stupid he steers it in a more helpful direction so this man is bowing to the north bowing to the south, bowing to the east and west, just bowing to the directions. Buddha tells him, this isn't the way that we pay respects to the different directions of the compass in the discipline of the noble ones, of the Arya Vinaya. And so the young man is intrigued. He asks me, well, what did you tell me? What's the right way to pay respects to the six directions? Six, this is including the zenith, uh, the nadder and the zenith, so above and below, as well as north, south, east, west. He asked the Buddha, why don't you tell me if there's a better way of doing this? What's the way to do it in the way of the Aryans, the noble ones? And the Buddha is very clever. Again, he he doesn't just disregard what he's doing. He kind of redirects it skillfully. He modifies it and adapts it, works with it, not against it. So he compares these six directions to the different people and the different posts or positions they hold in our lives. Says if you've got your you've got your parents and you've got you've got your parents on the west. Sorry, you've got your parents in the east the West, you've got your friends, relatives, 
above you, you've got ascetics. Monks below you, you've got maybe servants. Slaves at the time would have been quite normal. You've got these different people in your life. Why don't you pay respects to them? Why don't you revere them? That's quite skillful. You think about it, you're bowing literally to the north and there's no one there. Well, you don't know who's there. You're kind of like bowing to nothing. The Buddha's redirecting his attention. Well, what about the people who are actually right in front of you? The people who are closest to you? The people who are right behind you or at your sides? These different categories of people in our lives and there's ways to revere them and to respect them to honor them and this is a very long sutta it would be too exhaustive to go into a whole detailed uh, analysis of that but just from on mother's day it's interesting what the buddha says about how a child should relate to his mum and dad and particularly how a husband should treat his wife because we have to remember mothers they're also wives they're not just mothers particularly for the times how does a husband you could extend that to boyfriends and their girlfriends how do they relate to their wife and their partner he said they should honor them he said they should respect them and they should not dis uh disrespect them and they should be faithful to them loyal and they should even give them authority and they should offer them uh, ornaments so I guess that means necklaces garments of various various descriptions that there's honor there if you honor them you don't disrespect them give them authority even what type of authority doesn't go into uh, details about there but to be faithful and loyal to them and to offer them gifts and presents so on mother's day this seems like fairly uh, something that fits fairly nicely with i think the spirit of the occasion because it's not just about gratitude it's also about respect having a high regard for people in our lives you deserve the high regard. So this type of reverence, this type of uh, veneration, again, it's the Buddha seeing someone who's got those qualities but would be better off directing them at the right people. He says this is, if this is like a direction, if this is, if this is someone to your, on the west side of you, you think about it, that particular person, the position, where they stand in our life, where we stand in their life, it's kind of like a zone. If you go into that person's house, they come into your house, you're kind of like, you could be in a danger zone where things could be very awkward, there can be a strange tension because of a fight that's happened in the past, bad relationship, kind of like you're in a danger zone. It could be feelings of dread even. could be like that or it could be a happy place your relationship with that person you on that level that part of your life you that area you know it could be a place which is peaceful and safe and which brings happiness 
And so this is how the Buddha says, if you really want to protect yourself in all directions, and it seems that this was the original purpose of this man's religious practice, bowing to the different directions, he's trying to set up a kind of a protective field. If you really want to protect, guard that direction, keep it a place of safety and security and peace, then uh, relate to that person in this way. So if it's uh, if it's your wife, you know, when your relationship or the house, the place where your relationship used to be a danger zone, you, it's not peaceful, not safe, literally real danger, domestic violence comes from the opposite qualities you think about it. The Buddha says you make all the yourself safe and secure in all the directions, make them all peaceful by the way you act and the way you relate to the people who are around you, whether it's north, south, east or west, what energy you put out, the way you treat them, this is a karmic principle. You come back as pleasure and happiness if it's skillful actions, or it can come back as pain, danger, threatening situation, a miserable situation. And this is really the center of gravity here is uh, our own mind and our own intentions. And do we respect the people around us? We appreciate them, treat them well. As for kids, in the Sutta, the Buddha asks, how should children relate to their parents, to their mum and dad? If they treat their parents in certain ways, and probably their parents will reciprocate. This is also about the reciprocal nature of relationships. Treating the parents in a way, I think this is a very interesting reflection. You, you make yourself worthy of the inheritance. Yeah. Thinking I, they've supported me, now I'll support them. A lot of this is about reciprocity, would be the modern word. Making oneself worthy of the inheritance. Why do we assume that we deserve an inheritance if our behavior is not worthy of trust? Not worthy of it. Maybe if... Maybe if sons and daughters you know, don't inspire their parents in this sense, maybe the inheritance will end up going to someone else. Yeah? Just because we're the offspring of that particular person doesn't mean we're worthy of what they've got to give. We have to make ourselves worthy. A lot of time we're expecting a lot from our parents, but not turning that attention around and looking at whether we have actually done a whole lot for them, yeah? whether we've repaid the debt of gratitude or what kind of children we've been what kind of sons and daughters we've been. All too often human beings have this expect expectation from others for them to do a lot, to always get it right, never to let us down. And rarely do we turn around and actually take a look at ourselves. So one way kids, the Buddha says, should relate to their parents is a way where they appreciate that they've had a lot of support. And so they should reciprocate that. And they should also be a worthy uh, recipient of inheritance. But ultimately, we repay them, the Buddha says, with getting them established in good spiritual qualities, if this is possible. If you're able to help your parents, particularly in their later years, 
mothers particularly, again, they have those spiritual tendencies. If you can help them, give them access to the Dhamma, this is the best way to repay them. The Buddha says even if, even if you were to establish them as rulers over a huge piece of land, shower them with treasure, make them powerful rulers, you still haven't repaid the debt of gratitude. So how do we do that? He said you get them established in conviction, in sadha, in morality, in jaka, in generosity, and in wisdom, banya. Someone who's able to do that has truly repaid the parents. So basically supporting them in their spiritual practice. And I think this is very important we do that. See, for me, as I said before, my own mother, my biological mother and my spiritual mother, you know, they've supported me in my spiritual practice in one way or another. And this is something that as they get older, hopefully in whatever way I can, I reciprocate that. And this is a message for all of us. So on on this particular occasion, I hope everyone can uh, uh, appreciate the value, the role of our moms in our lives, and that we can see women as that. Women are uh, people who ultimately uh, they, they support and they nourish. Uh, they give a lot of comfort you know, to their kids, to their offspring, and this should bring up an attitude of respect and appreciation um, for them. They're not just anything. They're not just objects of women. They're not just objects of sexual desire. They're not just there uh, for our entertainment. Uh, they're human beings. And uh, I believe we can have this particular attitude fostered in our minds by uh, using these reflections. So maybe... Um, I'll leave the monologue there. It's already one o'clock and I've said quite a lot. So if there are any questions and I can see there is one. Um, okay, what is good and what is bad? That's a very broad question. So um, we could, yeah, <laughs> what is good and what is bad in terms of anything specific good and bad in that extremely general sense or <laughs> good and bad we tend to talk about skillful and unskillful in Buddhism so skillful and unskillful uh, this is a bit different to you we can talk about good and bad intentions right and say if you have an intention to help someone or an intention to hurt someone uh, you could have very good intentions very pure intentions but uh, we take a step uh, further. We talk about something called kusala and akusala. So that means skillful or unskillful. So basically, if you've done something in a way whereby it gets a good result, it brings a good result, uh, you've done it wisely. This term was used once when the Buddha saw someone meditating too hard. They were straining themselves, probably with a very good intention, yeah wanted to progress in their practice. Uh, this particular monk uh, was even battering his body, even making his feet bleed because he was walking meditation so much. Uh, it's a famous story. The Buddha gives his teaching on 
uh, how to skillfully go about one's spiritual practice. Practice. So he uses the word kusala when he asks this man in the past, "Weren't you a good?" Um, what is a, he was a musician. So the I can't remember the name. It's kind of like a lute. He asked this man, "Weren't you a, a kusala?" musician in the past they weren't you a good musician but it has connotations of skill you know weren't you a good lute player weren't you a skillful lute player and this man says yes and so the buddha encourages him to take uh, the same kind of attitude towards his meditation practice you push too hard you strain too hard in the same way that you don't tighten the string too taut so it snaps when you play it and you don't let it go too loose and laziness and inaction, lethargy or not trying, giving in to our weaknesses. The Buddha encourages him to strike a nice even pitch in the same way that he would when he was playing his lute before he became a monk. And the word the Buddha uses there is kusala. You know, so you could say, well, you were a good guitarist. Someone might be a good guitarist. They might be a bad guitarist. You could also say they're a skillful guitarist or an unskilled guitarist. So just wanting to be a good guitarist or um, wanting to share one's music with other people is kind of not good enough. Good uh, Buddhism also means having a strategy or a method which actually achieves a good result. So if it's a guitar, it's a beautiful sound, nice resonant tunes uh, that you're strumming away at. If it's meditation uh, to get, good results in meditation. You need to be skillful about it. You need to do it wisely, not just push with force or not do it at all. Good karma basically um, brings pleasant results. If something brings a pleasant result, a blameless happiness, uh, this would be one of the major marks of good karma, good actions.